Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in the second in a series of four Terra lectures in American art. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the second in a series of four Terra lectures in American art. This series is sponsored by the Terra Foundation for American Art, which is dedicated to fostering exploration, understanding, and enjoyment of the visual arts of the United States for national and international audiences. In collaboration with the Department of the History of Art at Oxford and Worcester College, the Foundation grants an annual fellowship to a leading scholar in American art. Emily C. Burns is the Terra Visiting Professor for 2020 through 2021. My name is Jeff Batchen, and I am, I am the head of the History of Art Department at the University of Oxford. Our thanks go to the Terra Foundation and to Torch for hosting this series as part of their online events in the Humanities Cultural Program, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Center for the Humanities. Throughout this evening's lecture, if you have any questions, please feel free to type, type them in the YouTube chat box and we will do our best to answer as many of them as we can during the session. We are delighted that this lecture will be introduced and chaired by Professor Wanda Korn. Wanda is Robert and Ruth Halperin Professor in Art History Emerita at Stanford University, where she taught from 1980 to 2008 and mentor, mentored many of those now teaching and curating in the field of American art. She chaired the Department of Art and Art History Department, for, sorry, she chaired the Art and Art History Department for several years and served a term as the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. Her major study of avant-garde modernist culture along the Atlantic Rim, The Great American Thing, Modern Art and American Identity, 1915 through 1935, was published by the University of California Press in 1999 and won the Charles C. Eldridge Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in American Art. With UC Press, she also published Women Building History, a book about Mary Cassatt and the decorative program of murals and sculptures for the Women's Building at the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition. Active as a guest curator, Wanda has produced various books and exhibitions, including The Color of Mood, American Tonalism, 1990, 1900 through 1910, The Art of Andrew Wyeth, Grant Wood, The Regionalist Vision, Seeing Gertrude Stein, Five Stories, and in 2017 through 2019, Georgia O'Keeffe, Living Modern. She is currently writing a biography of American Gothic, a famous 1930 painting by Grant Wood that has often been reproduced in American high and popular culture in subsequent years. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Professor Wanda Korn. And now Wanda, I hand it over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And hello to all of you out there uh, on whatever continent or country uh, you're listening to this and tuning in. Wonderful that this kind of virtual uh, presentation uh, can find such a wide and diverse audience around the world. I myself am greeting you from the shores of Cape Cod, uh, land of the Wampanoag, and I happen to know that uh, there'll be a, um, a map later on in the lecture, and you'll see very clearly, if you look for the Wampanoag tribe, where I am uh, resident uh, as I speak with you. It's my pleasure to introduce Emily Burns, uh, for the second of her four lectures. She's Associate Professor of Art History at Auburn University and a scholar of transnational exchange in the late 19th and early 20th century. In 2018, she published Transnational Frontiers, the American West in France with the University of Oklahoma Press. And she has a forthcoming anthology co-edited with Alice M. Rudy Price called Mapping Impressionist Painting in Transnational Context, and that'll be published by Rutledge. Related to today's talk are her publications in anthologies on art and transnational um, exchange. 
there were three of them. They're all co-edited, but let me mention their titles. Artistic Migration and Identity in Paris, 1870 to 1940. Another anthology in which her work has appeared, Foreign Artists and Communities in Modern Paris, 1870 to 1914. And she's also uh, written about her topic uh, of today in Cheryl May and Marion Wardle's A Seamless Web, Transatlantic Art in the 19th Century. During her tenure as the Terra Foundation of, for American Art Visiting Professor uh, in the Department of History of Art at the University of Oxford, um, where she's also a visiting fellow at Worcester College, Professor Burns is completing her book manuscript from which today's talk comes. And the title, or at least the working title of that manuscript is Performing Innocence, Cultural Belatedness and U.S. Art in Fantasiac Paris. Uh, Emily, welcome again. Uh, and we look forward to today's presentation, which follows on last week's, which was called Belated and was a construction of American innocence, particularly abroad. Um, and today your topic is simply Puritan. I hand it over to you. Thank you so much, Wanda. I'll just share my screen. Uh, thank you, uh, Jeff, as well, for your introductions. Also, Torch for managing, and of course, the Terra Foundation for sponsoring this series. And thank you all for being here. A reminder, too, to please not hesitate to send your questions over the chat function during the live stream. Visitors passing the Petit Palais at the center of the Paris Exposition of 1900 would have encountered a figure which our eyes might read as incongruous with fin de siècle Paris. Stalking forward and scowling down at pedestrians with a stern and disapproving expression from a pedestal was the larger-than-life sculpture The Puritan by Augustus St. Gaudens. He holds a massive Bible and leans on a walking stick. His upright back is enveloped by a thick, dense cloak that drapes behind his body. While designed as a representation of a particular individual, the 17th century Puritan deacon Samuel Chapin, St. Gaudens made clear that he saw it as an, a, quote, embodiment of the Puritan. A bronze of the sculpture had been installed in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1887, which you see at left, and St. Gaudens signed a contract with a Parisian foundry in the late 1890s to produce bronze tabletop versions of it, and about 40 at least were produced, one of which you can see on the right. A plaster of the Puritan was displayed at the Salon of the Société Nationale de Beaux-Arts in 1898, likely the version seen in the background of a photograph of the artist's Paris studio. The artist in foreground subtly, subtly mimics his sculpture in posture and countenance. In its circulation in Paris, the Puritan enacted more than an icon of the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. The sculpture both reinscribed and mocked a personality of steadfast focus, rigidity, and faith as it built and exported a lineage for U.S. history tied to Puritan origins, New England identity, and Anglo-Saxon white culture. With a hat partly modeled on one that William Merritt Chase purportedly used while playing Puritan at a costume ball in Munich, the figure's clothing nods to US identity performance abroad. With both gravity and humor as it reifies and undercuts myths, which my colleagues Erica Doss, Julia Rosenbaum, and Jennifer Greenhill have all explored, especially in the US context, the sculpture is both, Doss sums up, quote, Puritan backlash and Puritan exemplar. For contemporaries encountering St. Gaudens' stalwart figure, which won a grand prize at the Paris Exposition, the contradictory ideas he represented were current as they were then hotly debated in the US colony in Paris. What Doss has described as the fun-hating figure not only frowned at passerby, but also towards Louis Convers' The Four Seasons, which was placed to the left of the entrance of the newly constructed Petit Palais. Its nude and scantily clad allegorical women, delightedly and casually gathering fruit, seem certain to have drawn the figure's ire. 
The tension invited by this pairing reverberated through much of the US colony in Paris, which built an anxious narrative pitting French Bohemia against US puritanical culture, polarizing in essence, the Parisian against the Puritan. Edging between Protestant faith, constructions of Puritanism and a secularized moralism, many made claims that steadfast and focused work ethic was a so-called American trait that needed to be retained as a protective armor to avoid absorption into life and culture in the foreign capital. These ideas also had implications for aesthetics. French critics wondered, for instance, if the Puritans, quote, massive book, which though closed, must limit his mental horizons, implicated likely, also quoting from a critic, narrow perspectives of US artists abroad. Yet one concluded that the broader imagination of St. Gaudens in depicting this complex figure indicated otherwise. With its projections of moral innocence, this trope is laden with contradictions. In addition to the colonial ethos embedded in the Puritan striding forward upon a wooded landscape, inviting us to recall from last week what Henry James described as, quote, innocence and might, and Edith Wharton inscribed as a, quote, factitious purity, innocence is incompatible with the extremist dogmatic fundamentalism and with Puritan's persecution of native people along the Eastern seaboard. And here we can have a map shout out to Wanda um, in her present location. Um, but here where in particular members of the Wampanoag and Massachusetts nation among other nearby nations um, were persecuted by um, Puritan colonists. As Chapin and his fellow Puritans sought to vanquish native voices and cultures, they built a race hierarchy that retained its currency in the 19th century. Exported in Paris, the Puritan cultivates and upholds that normative white male Protestant culture and highlights those origins of settler colonialism. This figure also builds a hierarchy that excludes black and women artists a power structure unwittingly implied in the silence obscured labor visible in the photograph of the sculpture in Paris, where two unnamed and darker skinned laborers rarely mentioned in the scholarship or in the title of the photograph when reproduced stand behind the workbench. Exporting the trajectory of the so-called city on the hill rhetoric that fueled the Puritan movement to the new world in the 17th century, Americans carried what Doss termed the moral journey back to Europe. As an icon of these mobilities, St. Gaudens sculpture sat amid a larger constellation of US spaces in Paris, which I will map out for us today. You can see on this 1910 map, tiny placed images of some of the sites that we'll look at, and you'll see bigger images as we go. Um, but I'll just point out they're clustered, um, some uh, in the eighth arrondissement near the Arc de Triomphe on the right bank, and then a bunch of sites at the border between the 5th, 6th, and 14th arrondissements along the Boulevard Montparnasse. From churches to studios to artists' clubs, the U.S. built environment in Paris um, invited links with Puritanism by connecting with the idea of the Hortus Conclusus, enclosed Edenic gardens framed by the Virgin Mary's purity. Many terms were bantered around to define this construction, not only of literal space in Paris, but also the connected community that circulated through it. Um, and I'll run down a bunch of them for you. Little America, the Parisian American world, the American colony, the American corner, Americanized Paris, American Paris, a little city within a big one, and even a country unto itself. The experiences of women artists in Paris were particularly shaped by this strident discourse about morality, which limited their professionalism. Yet artists who were for any reason outside the, the norms set by this discourse often subtly disrupted the operations of stereotype, either by taking up or wholly rejecting these projections. While contemporaries sought to pin down distinctions between French and American characters, the categories of Parisian and Puritan were never firmly fixed, operating instead in a constant productive tension. As in Blanche Howard's description of her protagonist Everett Hammer, an American painter in uh, her novel, Gwen, A Wave on the Breton Coast, 
quote, good old fashioned New England traits and rank bohemianism played hide and seek in the nooks and crannies of his character. So while problematic and contradictory, the fluidity of the concept of the Puritan enabled black artists and women artists points of entry to mimic or critique the social order. The large American Protestant community shaped much of this cultural conversation. Two American churches were founded in the 1850s on the right bank, a non-denominational evangelical church based at 21 Rue de Berry in 1857, and an Episcopal spin-off two years later, the American Cathedral of the Holy Trinity. The latter opened its neo-Gothic structure in 1886, designed by British architect George Edmund Street on the Avenue Georges V, just south of the Champs-Élysées. Offering services in English and regular social events, both churches targeted the U.S. and wider Anglophone communities in Paris then and now, although the American church has relocated um, to the Quai d'Orsay. These institutions entered fierce ongoing debates about religion and public life in Fonda Siècle France. The establishment of the Third Republic in 1871 brought many Protestants into powerful government positions and discussions ensued about the relationships between Republican values, morality, education, and tolerance that fueled the fervor surrounding the Dreyfus Affair in the 1890s and led to the separation between religion and state in 1905. Within debates about laicization, as Stephen House has explored, some observers cautioned that a quote, Protestant conquest of France was taking place. By insisting on expansive displays of collective religion in public life, and two, by connecting themselves with French Huguenot tradition and also with um, British um, Protestant practice, um, these American churches are occupying uneasy terrain. But Reverend E.W. Hitchcock, the rector of the Ecumenical American Church in the early 1880s, argued that Protestantism was the antidote to the perils of the city. And he gave a long and uh, detailed sermon of which I just pull one pithy quotation. Um, if anywhere there is need of fixed principles of action and settled faith and watchfulness and prayer and every part of the Christian armor, it is in Paris. Church leadership imagined twin enemies for Americans in Paris as extremes of sensual excess, Catholic worship and Bohemian life. Many US travelers wrote of their shock at the pomp and ostentation they associated with Catholic worship. They articulated similar anxiety about the drama of Bohemian life. Waves of articles in the American press warned of quote, hotbeds of immorality and widespread moral filth. However, mythic, the idea that bohemian culture enabled art making through creative spurts and debauchery seemed antithetical to the trope of success through constant and focused work. Visual representations fueled these perceived cultural differences. Published in 1904, Jean-André Castagne's novel, Fata Morgana, A Romance of Art Student Life in Paris, polarizes the Parisian and the Puritan. A French artist named Poufay at left carves a sculpture bust in his studio, erratically, quote, hammering the clay with a terrible blow of his fist as his body curves wildly. Juxtaposing Poufay's undulating body and wild gesticulations, the aptly named Phil Longwill stands with rigidly straight posture, opposing Poufay in stature and demeanor. His tailored suit counters the French artist's disheveled, wrinkled clothing. Poufay's crowded and unkempt studio, which Castagna described as an astonishing place heaped up with mud, a chaos of clay and plaster, matches his impassioned art making. He does not even look at the sculpture as he strikes it. And just yesterday when I was practicing this talk, I noticed another detail. I'm going to bring the mouse pointer to it here so you can see there's actually a poster on the wall behind Phil um, that says Vive Liberté, Life, Freedom, conveniently placed over Phil's head in this pairing. Poufay is especially disturbed by Phil's appearance, which he perceives as entirely constricted with his buttoned collar. He shouts at the American artist, Phil, take off your collar. The sight of you with that instrument of torture chokes me. 
In the novel and illustration, Pufai and Phil's dramatic opposition frames a constructed dichotomy between French and American. The American Cathedral of the Holy Trinity used this rhetoric to justify an intervention in the art world by building in 1891 a satellite location in the Latin Quarter. In honor of its intended regulars, it was named St. Luke's for the patron saint of artists. Based at 5 Rue de la Grande Chaumière in an iron, wood, and glass structure which became known as the Little Tin Church, it was humble akin to an artist's studio. Some worshipers described it as a garage adjacency and like a workshop. Its largely unadorned interior was designed to isolate American art students from the perceived temptations outside the garden walls. The uncushioned chairs that lined the rows of the interior, amazingly still extant, although the seats have been recaned, um, are encouraging one to take on a posture of pious, careful attention with austere, upright forms, the seats small enough to ensure that one must sit erect with both feet on the floor, knees overhanging the seat base, no slouch, only focus. And a few artists even commented in their letters on how uncomfortable these chairs were. And I can also concur having had the opportunity to sit in them myself. Americans in Paris regularly wrote home and in their diaries about all three churches, but these performances of religious and national identity were not necessarily embedded in religious belief or in historical fact. You'll find a whole range, it seems, across this number of artists. Regardless, the frequent use of Protestantism to announce cultural and artistic identities as steadfast and morally driven reverberated back to the United States in letters and newspaper articles. The notion of hermetic separation from the Parisian milieu folded into the ostensibly secular artist clubs formed in the 1890s as community spaces for Americans in Paris, where leadership and donors claimed to insulate members from the foreign city by encouraging focused work and uninterrupted nationalism as an articulation of retained Puritan ethos. Artist clubs like the American Art Association of Paris, which I'll refer to as by its acronym AAAP, and the American Girls Club, AGC, which opened in 1890 and 1893 respectively, sought to revise ideas of bohemian culture by establishing a hermetic U.S. enclave in Paris. The clubs became icons of the utility of Paris for artists by showing that American time abroad was not squandered, as Richard Harding Davis celebrated artists who, quote, made use of Paris instead of permitting Paris to make use of them. And of course, these clubs operated with major support from the U.S. churches in Paris. Members of both clubs used the garden rhetoric to define their separation from the city. At the AAAP, Secretary Nesbitt Benson stressed that the quote, raising of the streets around us makes our little garden all the more shut in. And you can see in the photograph on the upper left, the kind of pine trees that are ensconcing the building. And then in the background, you can see larger Parisian uh, structures behind it. Another writer commented, quote, outside the wall lies Paris, inside is America. Meanwhile, a year after St. Luke's opened, the AGC moved into the building behind it, which had been a Calvinist school for boys. As one contemporary noted, the entry to the club from the street seemed like a church door. As seen in the postcard at bottom right, sent by painter Mildred Burridge to her family in Maine, most representations of the structure emphasize seclusion with a view from inside the garden, looking back towards the U-shaped building from St. Luke's Chapel. This perspective highlights the enclosed nature of the compound, which I should add is still extant um, now as the Columbia University uh, Center in Paris. Another photograph from 1903 places AGC members up on the balcony of the site with Reverend Van Winkle, who was the minister of St. Luke's, acting as the gatekeeper and literalizing the US religious community as the protectorate of national morality. These institutions imagined themselves to be behavior shaping with messages to men not to be too loud and to women probably not to make art. 
One of the illustrations by member George H. Leonard at left depicts the AAP bulletin board pairing exhibition announcements with the sign, the members are requested to refrain from loud conversation. And on the right, a Scribner's illustration of a demure female art student at the AGC shows a woman sitting with her hands in her lap, revealing no evidence at all that she is an artist. And the use of girls in the title of the organization suggested the need for guardianship. And even after the organization changed its name, the original title stuck. The kind of hermetic seclusion foregrounded by the churches and clubs also appears in many US artist studios in Paris. And we will look at a few examples of Laredo Taft's, Henry Osawa Tanner's, and James McNeil Whistler's Paris spaces. Like the interior of St. Luke's, the walls were frequently austere. This aesthetic revised tropes of bohemian laziness and remedied the experience of crowded ateliers in Paris, like the Académie Julienne, of which Tanner declared, quote, never had I seen or heard such a bedlam or men waste so much time. They also redirected the cosmopolitan studio design of an earlier generation, including Chase and expatriate painter Frederick Arthur Bridgman in the 1880s, both of whom adopted the model of French academic studios in their design. In the AAP journal Cartier Latin, the writer Ernest Thompson complained about such overstuffed studios with what he called useless odds and ends. And he caricatured an artist who perished because he could not relinquish his belongings. The accompanying illustration by club member John Peter Pemberton offers the thinly veiled portrait of Chase inspecting a vase among a dizzying array of objects in a topsy-turvy space. For many artists of a younger generation coming to Paris, um, modest representations took up seclusion in place of worldly connection. Scholars like Sudan Sidlauskas, Svetlana Alpers, and other working on the interior and studio have argued that representations of space are metaphors of self. Indeed, some studio paintings by US artists in Paris can be seen as abstract self-portraits that imagine the austerity, cleanliness, and purity of the American colony. Yet, of course, the images they produce are, are necessarily intersocial. They are designed to be shown to others even as they inflect the idea of their own solitude. Further, this visual language operates as a harbinger of modernist aesthetics. One of the earliest examples of this burgeoning approach that I found was the American sculptor Laredo Taft's representation of his Chambre de Bonne, which is the maid's chamber in Paris, located at the top of 142 steps on the Rue Palette in 1880. In Taft's carefully penciled and penned chamber, which he claims required four hours to meticulously draw, the clean lines of his sketch match the bare room. His inclusion of the door frame on both sides draws attention to the threshold into the artist's space. Taft's hermetic enclosure is exaggerated by the linear perspective, which pulls the viewer's eye quickly through the room and then out the window, rather than inviting us to linger in his private space. Taft wrote to his family with an intensity typical of the letters of the period. I am in earnest in my work here, terribly in earnest, and no earthly power or obstacle that I can overcome shall prevent my reaching the mark I am aiming at. Taft connected the design of his room with work ethic and moral focus, which was also linked with his own Protestant worship at the American church and his involvement with a church supported philanthropy called the McCall Mission. One of the artist's short stories constructed his Paris space as a moral battleground when he imagined a beautiful French woman arriving at his door in the middle of the night, asking to move in. But, and I quote from his story, training and tradition came to the rescue and he sends her away. Temptations rendered inaccessible also come to the fore in an intriguing early sketch from the window of Edward Hopper's room in his Baptist pension decades later. Tanner's Paris studios also build hermetic seclusion. Though he shared a studio at 15 Rue de Seine with sculptor Herman Atkins McNeil when he first arrived in Paris, the space he renders in 1893 here seems devoid of human presence. 
With only filtered light coming in from the windows at right, the room seems a cavern, protectively removed from the world outside and entirely still. Its seclusion parallels Tanner's recollections about the overwhelming city when he arrived, where he, quote, felt what it was to be a stranger in a strange land. How strange it was to have the power of understanding and um, being understood suddenly withdrawn. The strangeness of it, perhaps, is what made me feel so isolated. Here, noting, quote, I had come to study at such a cost that every minute seemed precious and not to be frittered away, Tanner defined, designed a space for uninterrupted work. Tanner moved to a studio alone at 51 Boulevard Saint-Jacques in 1895, and this larger space continued to match the ethos of focused work described in his autobiographical essays. A glowing light suffuses the photographs of his studio, of which there are several, building a spiritual sanctuary for the painter of mostly biblical iconography, whose father was an African Methodist Episcopal minister. In one photograph, Tanner's Mary on the easel seems to resonate with the glow from the skylights above. And in the painting, which is a nativity with a floating gold halo here, um, just over the shrouded cradle, an evocative light from multiple directions frames the Virgin Mary. Another photograph renders Tanner in his studio, contemplating the now lost Christ before the doctors. As Marcus Bruce compellingly suggests, Tanner mimics the figures in his painting who are listening to Christ's teaching. The photograph renders visible for Bruce, quote, both the manner in which Tanner hoped to present himself to the world and the message he hoped to impart. The focus on his pictures and light is enabled by the lack of decor throughout the studio, especially on the walls. And the contemporary critic Helen Cole, when she visited, described it as a quote, studio, which is exclusively for work because there are no gigaws or knickknacks uh, about. It is spotless and in perfect order, quite an exception to the popular idea of what a studio ought to be, she said. By this period, Tanner was among many such exceptions to Cole's construct of typical artist studios, as Americans' work in secluded spaces became something of a stereotype. In George de Maurier's 1894 novel about Paris Bohemia, Trilby, Little Billy and his friends returned to Paris to discover their former studio taken over by US artists who whitewashed the graffiti on the walls and transformed it into an unrecognizably clean aesthetic, quote, very spick and span space. The US painters in their atelier, and here again, I quote from the novel, were coldly civil on thus being disturbed in the middle of their work. Such a literary characterization suggests European perceptions of US character as focused on moral rigidity in the Hermetic studio. This stripped studio also became associated with modernism. Davis described a conversation with a US student in Paris uh, uh, in, a, in a studio that he perceived as empty. And the artist explained, we believe in lines and subdued colors and broad bare surfaces. There is nothing in this room that has not a meaning of its own. You are quite right, there's very little in it, but what is here could not be altered or changed without spoiling the harmony of the whole and nothing in it could be replaced or improved upon. While this strip studio appears most frequently among the younger generation of US artists abroad, Whistler's studio in the 1890s on the top floors of a purpose-built studio building on the Rue Notre-Dame-des-Champs marks an intriguing exception. At the twilight of his career, as Sarah Burns has argued, he began to cultivate an image of himself as a quote, living old master. In a photograph of his studio by George P. Jacquin Hood, Vertical panels lined the walls, which contemporaries described as painted in a quote, flesh color, likely a pink, peach, or beige combination based on Whistler's use of that term to title a few of his paintings, with all of the woodwork painted a quote, dazzling white, and with only a small single framed image, um, perhaps a mirror on the wall. 
While his display strategies converge with the hermetic creative Horti Conclusi of Taft and Tanner Studios, as Anna Gritzner Robbins and John Siewert have explored, Whistler's Paris studio operated more as a place of sociality than a place of work, as suggested in this photograph by his conferring with a client. Its clean lines operate in dialogue with the modern exhibitionary aesthetic he, hoped, he helped to promote. So perhaps evolved in parallel terms, an aesthetic engaged with the nationalist discourse of Puritanism, anima spirituality, here subtly mingles with modernism. Works of art offered iterative expressions on this cultural map of American Paris in the form of ephemeral displays sprinkled throughout the city in museums, at the spring salons, or at the artist clubs. And we're gonna kind of time travel a bit through um, 1889 and 1905 as we move between the Louvre, the salon of the um, Société Nationale de Beaux-Arts, which was located on the Champ de Mars. And this is where all of the salon objects I mentioned for the rest of the talk were shown. Um, and I'll also briefly take us to the Palace of Social Economy at the Paris Exposition of 1900, which was located here. Um, and for the remainder of the talk, I'll focus on one thread which investigates the operations of gender within this Puritanist discourse. And I've hinted to this a bit already in talking about the American Girls Club, um, but thinking about how gender is um, being constructed uh, through these exchanges, as well as how a few women artists navigated this restrictive conversation. And I'll briefly mention for anyone who's interested in following more about this conversation related to gender, I've uh, organized organized with um, the Birkbeck Center and Durham um, Centers for 19th Century Studies in um, England, a set of roundtables. And unfortunately, this Friday's is sold out, um, but there is another next Friday, which is dealing specifically uh, with gender, although a lot of the themes from this Friday's discussion will resurface. Um, and I think my Torch colleagues have um, posted a link for registration for that second roundtable. Um, so please do join us to dig deeper into this conversation. In this period, women were often featured as metaphors of quote, innocent flowers in anxieties about the adulteration of US art in France. And the female body became an allegorical site of temptation that embodied the need for protection. If museum goers in the Louvre stumbled upon William John Whittemore working on his picture of Charles Courtney Curran um, painting in the classical gallery in 1888, they might have noted an array of fragments of sculptures of female figures, a recently restored crouching Aphrodite, a female head, a female pubic region, the frieze of Selene and Endymion in which the female character places her lover in an eternal sleep. Yet in their parsing across the composition, Whittemore effectively desexualizes them. Hard at work and painting with a mall stick for steady control, bowler hat on his head, Curran evacuates all emotion and sensuality, even as he is directly nose to knees with a crouching Aphrodite. Countering the white marble made beige over time and wear, Whittemore reserves the whitest white in his painting for Curran's own collar, perhaps anticipating um, uh, Castagna's later construction of the American collar. British critic Walter Armstrong's comments about what he described as a certain coldness in American painting in 1889 with repressed emotion rendered like what he described the calm infallibility of a surgeon resonate with Whittemore's aesthetic, which itself played into ongoing discussions about the need for academic finish to prove the labor of production. Society painter Julius LeBlanc Stewart also articulated limited possibilities for women in his gigantic life-size drama, Redemption, unmissable at the Salon in 1905. The headline for the New York Herald, which was picked up by newspapers across U.S. cities, described a, quote, orgy in the present day, noting the solitary woman in relief at left with a glowing Christ on the cross glaring down over her shoulder as she awakens to her moral quandary um, against the glittering lamps and crystals and debauchery around her to the right, um, which um, the New York Herald described as a mystical and philosophical painting. 
As Stewart mingled both in the U.S. artist community and in the elite U.S. society in Paris, viewers likely perceived the characters in the painting as enacting this imagined clash between U.S. and Paris moral systems. So here women's positions were restricted to being pure or purient. How did U.S. women artists in Paris disrupt the systemic sexism that led to the dismembered or hypersexualized female body? Some cultivated links between New England history and myth. Philadelphia painter Cecilia Bowe shipped her portrait of Connecticut, her Connecticut cousin, Mrs. Julia Levitt Richards, across the Atlantic in 1896 for the Salon. Her iconography and titles in Paris, woman from Connecticut, and in Pennsylvania, New England woman, cultivated links with the American Northeast. French critic Charles de Verigny, who frequently wrote about US culture in general and American women in particular, had the year before highlighted French perceptions of New England culture as focused on a quote, simple and wholesome life, full of work and religion, with no time for vain regrets or idle dreams. St. Gaudens' friend Paul Bion wrote of Beau's, quote, respectable grandmothers who inspire veneration, but also in echoes of the Puritan, quote, fear of reprimand. In her studio and in wearing, wearing white, the woman is associated with virginal purity. And years ago, a colleague suggested that this composition also reminds of um, Georges de la Tour's Magdalene paintings. And I think that's a, a beautiful comparison. She sits here idle, but poised by mental activity, her newspaper held briefly down, closed books on the table beside the candle. Beau offers though a wildly transnational pairing, not only registering international expectations of the innocence and stoicism of her sitter, but also by exploring painting techniques which were in this period associated with Paris. Beau had studied in Paris and Concarneau from 19, 1888 to 1889, and her dynamic study of colors within the white and her active facture resonates with Impressionism and with Whistler's Symphony in White Number no. 1, The White Girl, which had been exhibited at the Salon de Refusé in Paris in 1863. Enhanced with occasional periwinkle and violet strokes to juxtapose the sitter's peach face, Beau emphasized the shades of white in the woman's dress, handkerchief, bedclothes, curtain, and chair. Using blue and yellow and violet for shadows, the only pure white on the painting comes in the heightening articulated in the impasto that you can see in this detail. Eugene Benson had noted in the 1860s that the quote, roots of American life in Puritanism must forever keep the artistic sentiment subordinate. In other words, that art making and Puritanism were incompatible. But French critics saw something ennobling in Beau's moral figure. Bion wrote that Beau's salon submissions revealed, quote, a side of America free from hurry, retired and tranquil, and we rest content and meditative in the atmosphere created by her admirable talent. Bion connected Beau's style and subject explicitly with U.S. identity, and I quote again from him, His br her brush is wholly at ease, intimately American, and shows us ways simple but true, though remote, the peaceful drawing of your family morals. Bion's comments attempted to cement what were fluid links between character morality, nationalism, and painting practice. Pleased to see pictures, quote, as pretty as plums on a tree, he joked about the Edenic references endemic in American Paris. Madame Cecilia Beau Prince presents us to them. Let me start that again. Madame Cecilia Beau presents them to us like fruits from the garden. Is that not indeed American? A photograph by Atlanta-based Black photographer Thomas Askew, which was included in the volume Types of American Negroes at the Exhibit of American Negroes in the Paris Exposition in 1900, just around the corner from where the Puritan sculpture was installed, taps into the same discourse of strident work ethic and moral steadfastness that fueled Beau's painting. This exhibition, which we'll turn to in much greater detail next week, engaged with such traits to define progress in the African-American community following emancipation. A light-skinned Black nursing student in three-quarter view in her starched white uniform sits studiously reading a book, her work ethic on full display. 
the pose, composition, contemplation, and insistent layered tones of white as a signal of steadfastness recall Bo's New England woman. Here too, delicate lace decorates the wall behind the woman's chair, and the cultivated plant reminds of social uplift. Bo's, Eskew's, and this unknown sitter's engagement with the visual culture of focus and work ethic suggests that white male artists in Paris did not have a sure monopoly on the Puritan discourse. Academic painter Lucy Lee Robbins took another tack to challenge constrictions for American or for US women artists in life and art. She achieved, achieved critical success in Paris with her paintings of nude women, um, most, most of which are unfortunately currently unlocated, although many were reproduced in the salon um, catalogs. Her iconography and purported affair with instructor Carlou Duran um, led her to be vilified by the US community in Paris. As art historian Brandon Fortune has considered, Lee Robbins adopted the female nude as a subject and divorced her from mythological contexts in ways that unsettled U.S. viewers anxious about Paris temptation. In Endormi, at right, the artist is positioned over a bed on which a nude woman sleeps, her body almost fully available to the viewer who stands looking down at her. The U.S. community in Paris linked lasciviousness in her art with their perceptions of her immorality. Yet Lee Robbins exhibited annually at the salon for over three decades and four times at the American Girls Club between 1901 and 1903. And her successful academic career belied the moralizing discourse that framed her before her marriage in the mid 1890s. As a form of misogynist mimicry, her nudes challenged the assertion that U.S. women could not manage the foreign art scene. Women artists like Bo and Lee Robbins, reverberating as well in Askew's photograph, pushed at the edges of these constructions. Yet, most U.S. women artists in Paris in the period did not have the critical or artistic success of these outliers and remained more confined by anxieties about the morality and guilelessness of U.S. women abroad. As the Russian painter in Paris, Marie Bashkirtchev, commented, women who challenged limitations on their liberty quickly found themselves further restricted. So not only the Puritan then, but the culture of American Paris as refracted and contested through Puritanism was wrapped up in the cloak of St. Gaudens sculpture on the Paris exposition grounds in 1900. Yet it is in this cloak where the Puritans' contradictions are perhaps most apparent, as Jennifer Greenhill has observed, this billowing and dynamic coat undercuts the forward inertia and the rigidity of the figure, building a paradoxical instability. The Puritan was an archetype and a gambit in terms taken up and subverted in Paris, both a restriction and a possibility in religious and secular contexts. It was also a layered transnational symbol that was passed back and forth between French and U.S. viewers, critics, and artists in both text and image. For many U.S. artists, the adoption of stereotypes of the Puritan was both a defensive and offensive gesture, defensive in the sense of constructing these hermetic spaces designed to um, separate a U.S. culture from French um, society, and offensive in the sense that there was a tone of trying to improve aspects of French life and culture that many Americans scorned. The re-emplacement of these objects locates them not only spatially, but also shows the operations of discourse as an ever dynamic constellation across the city. It reinscribes the cultural colonization of this innocent righteousness abroad, while emphasizing how artists who were minoritized by the Puritan structure due to race and gender identities navigated and manipulated the concept. Thank you for your time and attention. And I welcome Wanda Korn back to talk through some of this material further. There I am. Hi, Wanda. Hi, Emily. Hi. Elbows cross, cross <laughs> the Atlantic, a transatlantic move here. <laughs> oh, that was a very interesting talk and so interesting to see your, your argument building from uh, last week to this week. This week more maybe on the performative side of, of uh, uh, innocence abroad or at least making, making um, 
making something of innocence and making it a stance, a construction, a, an ethics to live by and, and so on. And various ways in which you bring that out in the church, the clubs, um, the studio, um, uh, construct the new kind of studio that, that, that you've detected. I wanna to return to that in just a second. Let me just remind our audience to, this is the moment to pop your questions into the chat box and we'll see if we can't get to them to um, give to um, Emily. I also, Emily, just love your mappings. I'm um, always interested of, about how making our own maps these days, thanks to the internet, is possible. But I love the way you showed us the relations uh, on both the right and the left bank um, of these various hotspots, if you will, of the American, what do you call it, the American corner, the world into itself. But uh, to, to be able to see where um, actually an American artist abroad would would walk, what the territory, the region would look like of of, of his or her um, Paris. That was that was very beautifully done, and and uh, I know they take time. So thanks for thanks for taking the time to do that. Um, let me just maybe launch a, a, a question that came up in my mind when you talk about the minimalist. Uh, cleaned up uh, studio. I was fascinated by that because my acquaintance with, and I don't have the full range of, of studios that you looked at, and that's what was very heady because I do know the Whistler example, um, and I know Sargent's studios um, abroad, but, and, and your way in which you do bring in modernism, which is what I was kind of hanging on because I've always thought of these studios as an, if you will, a a new model of how to, uh, the, the place in which to work. And in, uh, this is a half a question, but I presume these workspaces also, not the little sleep spaces, but the Tanner studio, for instance, may also have been places where commerce took place, where there was um, uh, uh, the, the, the collector or the, the person interested in talking to the artist about a commission and so on would also come. But it, the question is really about the intersection of your construction of, of, of Puritanism with modernism. And another space in which I think that's happening, but tell me if this fits you. you your, your study is primarily a Gilded Age uh, study. It ends more or less around World War I, but that does encompass something like a topic close to my heart is Gertrude Stein's studio um, in which I can certainly make an argument for the bohemian um, uh, presence uh, in the way she concocted that studio, the salons that she had on, uh, on a weekly basis with her brother, Leo. But maybe just to, the open question, the open-ended question is this interface um, between modernism and puritanism. Uh, and does it go beyond the studio and the space I was just suggesting or, um, just elaborate a little bit more on that, if you would. Thank you so much, Wanda. That's such a rich question. And I think that one of the things that has been sort of tricky to parse in this material is the kind of visual simulacrum between kind of Whistler Studio and Tanner Studio, for instance, even though as artists, they're at different moments in their career and they're positioning themselves in different ways. And I really admire a lot of the scholarship from say the last 10 years that has really rethought the role of religion in modernism, like thinking about um, Signs of Grace, um, uh, Kristen um, Schwain's book, and yeah. for instance, uh, among, among many others. And I think that I, I do want to suggest, and I think we can suggest that there is more kind of overlap and cohesion between these values. Um, but I think the other piece that you're bringing in is the kind of thread of Bohemian studio practice that does appear in some circles. And I think that Stein's case is a really interesting one because she is cultivating a kind of cosmopolitan space where she is gathering kind of artists from all over who are based in Paris in her salons. And there are some US artists in Paris who go there, but that doesn't seem to me to be her main focus of kind of how she's inserting herself in this more avant-garde conversation. But I think that in the context of the studios of um, artists who are more academic, like Tanner's, um, there is a kind of tone of uh, greater tie with a kind of nationalist 
connection perhaps than what Stein is building. Um, and I think too, as ever with these kind of discourses, there are always exceptions. And certainly there are artists who shed this um, kind of Puritan discourse entirely and take up this kind of bohemian ethos that's that's constructed and imagined and, and real for some in Paris. Yeah, and I'm wondering, I don't know quite how you bring this all to, a, to closure in your bigger study, but I'm wondering if in fact, part of the closure might not be a um, increasing, if you will, desire to be Bohemian uh, as an American abroad. And that brings us to the post-war generation, post-World War I generation, very desirous of even ex becoming an expat uh, in the 20s because of that very Bohemian culture, which is being uh, in your during your period uh, is 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 more suspect, <laughs> if yeah. you will. Well, I think too, Wanda, that point speaks to the um, performative nature of all of this because yeah. some of the artists who claim this insularity and this kind of Puritan ethos in Paris, when they go back to the U.S., they'll celebrate their Bohemian lives in Paris. Like uh, Joseph Henry Sharp writes about having a Latin Quarter Thanksgiving in um, Cincinnati when he got back um, and they kind of celebrated how they celebrated Thanksgiving in Paris at the American Artists Club, but then dressed as kind of French artists with berets. And so there's this way in which this identity is kind of tried on in Paris, but then shed and inverted upon return to the US even in the 1890s. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's an earlier example than mine. Mine example would be uh, uh, Grant Wood who, mm -hmm. Uh, also brought back uh, uh, customs. Uh, he started something called the Garlic Club, which was <laughs> a lunch club. I mean, this is not necessarily a Bohemian custom; it's a French custom. But the rubbing of the of the salad bowl uh, with 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 garlic um, before you put in the oil and vinegar and so on was thought to be kind of though a French affectation that he, <laughs> that he returned to Cedar Rapids uh, uh, with. Um, but he also he tried to set up something that in the 20s, he disavowed this later in the 30s, but in the 20s, he tried to set up something that was called the Latin uh, Cartier or the Latin Quarter of Cedar Rapids. Um, so he doing something similar to, uh, to Sharp. Well, one of our commentators, one of our questioners, I don't, don't have a, a country for this, uh, for Jane, but Jane uh, actually, I think is uh, touching on uh, she's sort of feeling sorry for those in the American quarter because of what they're losing out on. Uh, so she writes, the Americans who unfortunately chose not to mix with the French because of language or religion and so on, weren't they, weren't they left the poorer for it? <laughs> maybe Jane's from France or, or maybe <laughs> just someone who's had a very um, influential experience. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Any comment for Jane? Yeah, thank you so much, Jane. No, it's so true. I mean, as, as a person who, you know, values cosmopolitan exchange and thinks about how decentering one's perspective is one of the most important things that a kind of adult citizen of the world can do, it's hard to read some of these comments about the insularity that's happening. And like, there is a comment that's in the larger chapter from an artist who says, like, basically, you don't need to talk to anyone when you get to Paris. You just get in a taxi and you show them the address of the American Artists Club and they will take you there. And then from there, you'll find everything that you need and you'll kind of be imbricated in this satellite America. Um, and certainly that comes at a loss. Um, but I think it also speaks to the ways in which a kind of a corporate structure starts to form in Paris that Americans are going as this kind of rite of passage. They want to gain technical training. They want to kind of uh, go through this as a phase, uh, most of them not intending to ever stay in the long term. And some of them were quite successful and some of them did stay forever. Um, but many of them never even exhibited in the salons, which were one of the big goals that they had. And so these artist clubs, though, set up many exhibitions where artists who were club members could show their work. And so some of the some artists use this as a kind of uh, stepping stone to more professional and international uh, spaces. 
But for some artists, that was the kind of pinnacle of their, their Paris um, time. Um, but I think too, there were just so many thousands of artists uh, who were going. And so while this is indicative of a kind of a thread that recurs throughout the material, um, we have a whole array of experiences that um, kind of result. So it's a complicated network. Well, Jane is just self-identified as American. So we, <laughs> uh, uh, Rachel has asked, uh, after thanking you for your, your talk, would you say a little bit more about the defensiveness of these artists in relationship to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. For example, she's wondering about Tanner's Marian images. Mm. That's a great question, Rachel, thank you. Um, it is a kind of recurrent comment in letters that I've found between the 1850s and the early 20th century where people write about going to um, the Gothic cathedrals in uh, Paris, for instance, and they find themselves kind of fascinated with this, um, basically what they see as an antiquity of uh, architecture. Um, but when they attend the service, they see a kind of ritual that they find to be, um, they, they find themselves disconnected from um, and they find that they, um, the kind of collective worship too is something that they often comment upon in their letters. Um, and in the 1850s, there's a great letter by a, an American woman who was in Paris who um, was there when the American church first opened. And she writes about what it feels like to go to church at an American church worshiping um, in a kind of Protestant based structure um, and, and what that felt like. And so it's something that is um, kind of often discussed, but I think it's kind of a kind of critique of, of ritual. And the question about Tanner is a really rich one. And I'm not sure at this moment I'm equipped to answer it well, except to point you to um, Anna Marley's wonderful Tanner catalog that has um, many essays about Tanner's practice. And also there's an essay by Alan Braddock um, about Tanner and um, his religious paintings that's in the 19th century art worldwide. Um, and I think that Tanner is um, thinking about too uh, religion in the sense of a, a a personal experience rather than perhaps a collective one, um, and I think. Braddock writes really evocatively about the ways in which he is trying to navigate um, race in more nuanced and compelling ways um, through the representation of biblical stories. But I would have to dig further to get at your question of um, kind of how his um, belief system as registered through his religious paintings engages with ideas of Catholicism. So that's a great question and I will dig into it. One last question, um, Emily, I think is all we have time for, but um, this one comes from Jessica making the comment that the austere artist studios are so like the New England boarding house bedrooms of mm -hmm. female mill workers from earlier in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And she wonders, uh, and she, I think maybe this is a statement, where there are similar moral and religious anxieties. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's really more an observation and giving you another uh, sort of, if you will, uh, another kind of uh, a space uh, to compare your studios. Yeah, that's a really wonderful thought. Thank you. I don't know the images directly that you're speaking about, but I would imagine that in the same way, especially with regard to um, collection, collectives of women, that um, there is, especially when women are kind of lodging together, which at the case of um, the American Girls Club was the structure, and two, um, an American woman named Anna Lester wrote about wanting to live at the American Girls Club, but not finding a space there available, but then the club would recommend other boarding houses and other um, uh, organizations where one could reside. And so thinking about how um, maybe because of anxieties about prostitution that shape um, laws about how many women still in some states can even live in the same building. Um, there is this uh, tone of morality that um, gets inflected. Um, but it's interesting, your comment makes me think that um, class is also something that I might address more in thinking about the women who are participating in the artist clubs in Paris um, and, uh, and this kind of rhetoric of protection. Uh, 
Emily, when you get stateside next um, and uh, presumably the national parks reopen, you must come to Lowell, uh, Massachusetts, where the, there's a national park dedicated to the mill, mills of Lowell, Massachusetts. And you can go to some of the dormitories or I don't think they're even distinguished enough to be called boarding houses, but maybe they were. Um, but in any case, you get to see some of these bedrooms and, and they look a lot like that image of Taft's in the okay. uh, maid's quarters that, that you showed. Well, it's now my sad uh, job to close this down because we've reached the um, bewitching um, hour. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you for sending in your questions. And certainly big thanks to Emily for her thought provoking uh, lecture today. Uh, we thank Torch at Oxford for um, hosting it. Jeff Batchen for also hosting um, not only uh, Emily and her program at Oxford, but also this session uh, today. Um, join us next week, uh, the third um, in the Terra Lecture Series, uh, where she will be joined by James B. Smalls, the professor and chair of um, visual arts at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her lecture that uh, uh, time and in a week was entitled Primitive uh, dash or slash incipient. I hope you will all be able to join us uh, again then. And there'll be a fourth lecture, of course, two weeks um, from now. Thank you all. Thank you, Emily. Wish Thank this you. could be in person, but I love the fact that we are, I'm sure, um, beaming this uh, to many quarters um, around the uh, world that cares about American art. So thanks very much, everyone. And uh, good evening to some of you and good lunch hour to those of us on the East Coast. Bye-bye. <laughs>